Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Members of our extended broadcast community, Rob and Vimala Abraham, very kindly and generously made it possible for Anita and me to spend almost two weeks just recently on the island of Patmos. It was an amazing experience. You don't get to Patmos by taking a wrong turn. You fly all the way, typically to Athens, and then you get on a ferry, and you ride for eight hours before you finally get to Patmos. There is no airport. You only get there by sea. Unless you have the kind of money Doug Mace has, and then you can helicopter in. (laughs) But we didn't, Doug, so we took the ferry. It's not that big of an island, but it's bigger than you might have thought. It's kind of a large sea at the center of which is the main village, town on the island, Scala. The entire island has a population of maybe 3,000 people. It's quiet. Other islands in the Greek Sea, the Aegean and the Mediterranean, Santorini, Mykonos, that's where the tourists go, that's where the parties happen. Patmos is quiet. You can climb, walk uphill, about halfway up the mountain behind Scala until you come to a cave. It's had a Greek Orthodox church kind of built around it at this point in time, but the the cave, the, the large hole in the rock is preserved. Uh, we spent hours there. There was a Greek Orthodox service that unfolded, pilgrims that came and went, quiet time. There's a crevice in the rock which is said to have been the place where John lay his head. And we sat there, And I wondered, was this the place where the Spirit pulled back the curtain of eternity and allowed John a vision of what was to come? A vision that he would then write out that we today know as Revelation. It was a profoundly challenging vision. In fact, I've discovered that there are two very different responses. When I've mentioned to people in answer to their question, what are we going to do at camp meeting this year? And I've said, well, we're going to look at Revelation. There have been two responses. One response has been, oh, good, we need to be studying Revelation. With the world in the shape that it's in, we need to spend time there. The other response, what are we studying? Well, we're going to Revelation. Oh. Really? Beach is looking good. And I understand. I understand both responses, why they might respond that way. Because Revelation has created those kinds of experiences, those kinds of feelings. When you crack open its pages and begin to read through its chapters, you come to places where there is mayhem and chaos, death and destruction, bloodshed and violence, and you say, where in the world is Jesus in all of this? And then you come to a few beautiful portraits of Jesus, but honestly, too few, it seems. And you wonder, how do we deal with this? How do we approach Revelation? 
So by the grace of God, we're going to step into that space. I want to do two primary things today. First of all, I want to talk just a bit about what I think are some key background pieces to the study of Revelation, some realities that will be helpful to know as we step into Revelation's words. And the other is, I want to introduce us right out of the gate to some of the cast of characters in the book. So we start with the background. It's important, it's helpful to understand that when Revelation studies become an interest for someone, when somebody steps in trying to study and understand Revelation, there are four general approaches that are taken. The first approach is called the preterist approach. The preterist approach essentially says the bulk of what happened in Revelation is past. It happened in John's day and time. It happened in the Roman Empire of the day. Yes, there may be more to come toward the very end about the full establishment of the kingdom of God, but all of this that happened was back here with the Roman Empire. In fact, by AD 70, when Titus and his legions marched in and destroyed Jerusalem, that really ended the key parts of Revelation. That's the preterist approach. You may find some, there are those who hold strongly to it, especially in the world of scholarship. There's a second approach, and that is what is called the futurist approach. The futurist approach is almost the opposite of that. Yes, there were things that happened in John's day. See the seven churches, for example. But once you get to chapter 4 and move forward, everything is future. It has not happened yet. In fact, it will not happen until the last seven years of earth's history. In that last seven-year period of time, there will be a rapture of the church. There will be a great tribulation. There will be persecution. There will be cataclysmic destruction on every hand before finally Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom on earth. This approach takes as its starting point what we see in our day and time. So that if you're reading the descriptions of some of these creatures and beasts, there will be people who say, read that description. That sounds like an Apache attack helicopter. That's what those are. This refers to bombs. This refers to an end-time literal battle on the plain of Megiddo in the Middle East. That's where everything will come to its consummation. This is likely believed by most in the Christian world. That's a guess. I don't have hard numbers. But I will tell you it sells. Some of you will remember 1970, Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, writing from this perspective, sold 28 million copies. All the conversation, all the chatter in the Christian world was on the late great planet Earth. More recently, 97 to 06, more or less, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye, the Left Behind series, which was later made into movies, sold, depending on the source, 65 to 80 million copies, hundreds of millions of dollars for publishers and authors and others. Futurism sells. That's the second approach. Third approach is historicism. Historicism is the approach that says the events of Revelation start in the time of John, 
but they tell the story of the sweep of Christian history all the way to the coming of Christ. And as the story unfolds through the seven churches and the seven seals and the seven trumpets and on, they are simply outlining what happens throughout Christian history. Now, many, in fact, historically Adventists have tended to find themselves in this camp, camp of historicists. And then finally, there's a fourth approach called the idealist approach. The idealist approach is that which says, Revelation, like all of Scripture, has application in every day and in every time. If you're looking for the dragon of Revelation, you will find him in your day and time, no matter where, when you live or where you live. If you're looking for beastly powers, you will find them. If you're looking for the serpent working behind the scenes, always present. It doesn't mean that there aren't specific applications. It just says they are not contained to the time in which you live. In fairness and disclosure, we will primarily be taking an idealist approach, though it will have some elements also of historicism. So those are the four general approaches with which people come to Revelation. Secondly, we have to ask, what is Revelation? It's a book in the Bible, but what is it? Well, as you begin to read it, you quickly conclude, well, this is a letter because it has all the earmarks of an ancient letter. It says who wrote it. It says to whom it was written. It says it, it, it has a, a, doc, a, a blessing on the people who are going to receive it. It gets into and has a body in the letter. Then it has a conclusion. And then it wishes what It has all the elements of an ancient letter. So it's clearly a letter. However, the, the letter itself, in beginning and end, numerous times refers to itself as a prophecy. So maybe we could say it's a prophetic letter. Clearly, it's prophetic in tone. But then when we get into the body of the letter and we see beasts and destruction and damage, we say, wow, this is beyond anything I've read anywhere else in the New Testament. Read it in the book of Daniel, a few places in Ezekiel and Zechariah, but nothing like this in the New Testament. What is this? Well, it is apocalyptic writing. Apocalyptic was a certain kind, a certain genre of writing that was rather popular in the day of John in ancient Judaism. Apocalyptic writing began about the 3rd century B.C. and ended about the 2nd century A.D. It's curious that that was kind of the time when, when Malachi, the last of the Hebrew canonical prophets, passed off the scene and just before the New Testament was fully formed, it was during this period that apocalyptic writing became quite prevalent. John writes in an apocalyptic style. It's a genre. So what exactly is apocalyptic? Well, there are a number of different characteristics we could look at. I want to share just three. The first reality of apocalyptic writing is that it is highly symbolic. It majors in symbols, large symbols, bigger-than-life symbols, scary symbols. In fact, it's, like, it's, it's as if someone in our day who doesn't understand the genre says to you, you know, I just don't get C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. 
don't understand this talking animals and all, you know, this kingdom, this closet. I don't understand that. Or they say to you, I don't get the Hobbit, J.R.R. Tolkien's. What is that, all these strange creatures? I don't understand it. It's a genre of writing that is telling a story. If you get too caught up on the images, you're going to miss the story. That was apocalyptic writing, highly symbolic. But secondly, apocalyptic writing was very concerned with human history. It told the story of human history from creation to consummation. And it specifically focused on the work of God and the people of God and the way they were viewed to play into that story, exactly as Revelation does. And finally, apocalyptic writing was concerned with the end, at times with the imminence of the end. It's about to happen. At other times, praying that the end would come soon, like John does at the end of his letter when he prays, even so, come, Lord Jesus. So apocalyptic writing is very important to understand what John is writing. The final piece of background, I just want to say we're going to have to focus on themes. Seven key themes in the book. We could spend two years of Sabbaths and still not exhaust Revelation. In fact, look at some of the commentaries our own people have written. Sigva Tonstad's commentary, 350 pages. Franco Stefanovich's commentary, 600 pages. John Pauline's soon-to-come commentary says, oh, probably the 1,000 pages or more now. And I suspect if you spoke to any one of them, they would say, I wish the publisher had let me write more. There's just so much there. So we'll focus on themes. So as we turn to today's theme, our interest is to start to understand the cast of characters. Who exactly is important in the book of Revelation? And we begin by an introduction to the hero, the hero whose name is Jesus. We start with the hero, and we start with Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. And here is what it says. The revelation from Jesus Christ. Stop right there. The revelation from Jesus Christ. Some of your versions render that the revelation of Jesus Christ. It can be accurately translated both ways. One is saying the revelation from Jesus Christ as though to say, while it originated in the heart of the Father and came through Jesus and the Spirit and the angel, etc., this is the revelation of how we might expect Jesus in the coming days as human history unfolds to conduct himself, his methods, his story of what is to come. The revelation from Jesus Christ to tell you what's going to happen. Or, over here, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is going to show you who Jesus really is. When things get hot, when the going gets tough, when things are profoundly life-threatening and difficult, this is who Jesus is. It can be translated either way. But the bottom line, they both have inextricably to do with Jesus. Jesus all the way. 
So the first thing we say is the hero is woven into the very fabric of the scroll of this writing. And that's a problem. It's a problem because we confess that Jesus is the supreme revelation of the Father. Jesus himself in John 14 answered Philip's question, Lord, show us the Father by saying, Philip, have I been with you this long? And you're still asking, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The supreme revelation of God. So we read the Gospels. And do you know what we find? We find a rabbi who taught the way of love. We find a teacher who taught nonviolence. We find a healer who made people whole. We find an artist who painted a never-to-be-forgotten picture of God. And then we turn to Revelation and we say, what happened? Is this two different versions of Jesus? I mean, the Gospels, yes, I understand. Revelation, is this Jesus on a bad day? What, what, what is this? Because it feels, as we read it, so different because it is. And we try to sort that through. What does that mean about our hero? How are we to understand these things? Is this just different sides of Jesus? Where in the Gospels he taught nonviolence. In Revelation he says, your day has come. In the Gospels he said, turn the other cheek. In this he says, now I have a chance. I could have called 10,000 angels and I didn't. Now I'm going to. Gospels, love your enemies. Pray for those who misuse you. And now in Revelation, I'm going to deal with those people once and for all. What are we to do with that? Are these different pictures? You say, well, one was Jesus in his weakness. Now it's as a reigning king. I agree with that. But I wonder, does it tell you a lot about a person what they do when they're weak? Doesn't it tell you a lot about what they do when they're strong? How are we to reconcile these pictures of Jesus? It's not a rhetorical question. There are those who have wrestled profoundly with that question and have ended up throwing out the God of Revelation, just saying, can't deal with that, we're staying with the gospel. And there are some recognizable names who took that general approach. You might have heard of Martin Luther. I had very little good to say about Revelation and its value. But don't hitch your wagon too quickly to Luther because he also threw out Jude and James and Hebrews. And so, you know, you just be careful who you hitch your wagon to. But there were other Protestant reformers who took a same general approach or who just simply didn't speak about it at all. How do we deal with this issue? There will be much more as we move through the process of looking at Revelation to help us. But for now, one other passage right at the beginning of Revelation chapter 1. So Revelation 1 gives us an insight into the vision John had in that cave. In that cave, he hears a mighty voice like the sound of rushing water speaking to him. 
And when he hears that voice, he turns to see who it is, and it's this majestic, cosmic Christ who says to him, I have all authority and all power. I have the keys of death in the grave. I was dead. I'm now alive. He hears that. It is so overwhelming to him that this is what happens. Revelation 1 and verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. In other words, he saw this majestic Christ and he just collapsed. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. Other than the command to write the vision and to send it to the seven churches, this is the first statement Jesus makes in the book of Revelation. He has said, write this down, send it to the seven churches. But as we get to the body of the letter, the first thing Jesus says to John is, do not fear. Isn't it curious that the very emotion that most of us have felt as we've studied the book is the one emotion Jesus prohibits? Don't be afraid. We're right on the lip of the vision, right on the threshold of a lot of destruction that's going to happen. We see this grand cosmic Christ. We're tempted to shrink back in fear. He lays his hand on us and says, do not fear. So as we start this journey in Revelation, we begin by recognizing it's all about Jesus and his ways, and we need not fear. More questions and answers hopefully to come, but that's the first member of the cast of characters, the hero. And then there's the antagonist, the antagonist, the foe, the enemy. Now that enemy makes several cameo appearances in the first three chapters of Revelation. In the letters to the seven churches, at least six times he's named. Five times he's called Satan. One time he's called the devil. We will hear much more of him in Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, but for now he's making a cameo appearance, so we have to introduce him. What is it we ought to know about the foe, the antagonist? Well, know this first of all. His name, mentioned five times in the letters to the seven churches, is Satan. That is, as one Bible study word book puts it, that's his, his name, his, his proper name. Just like Jesus is the name of the hero. Satan is the name of the antagonist. But the title, which for Jesus would be Christ, anointed one, Messiah, the title of the antagonist is diabolos in the Greek, devil in English, or in Spanish, diablo. That's his title, his title that describes what he does, how he works, who he is. So how is that word translated? Diabolos is translated accuser or slanderer. Accuser or slanderer. 
In other words, what we know at this point, just with some cameo appearances, is that what we can expect from this foe is that when he goes to work, he is slandering everywhere he can, anyone he can. You end up not knowing what to believe about anyone, especially God. When this one is working his mouth because he's constantly slandering, especially slandering the hero. I'd like to read you two quotes from Sigma Tonstad's commentary. Sigma's part of our community, although he lives in Norway where it's not 105. Excellent commentary. You won't read it in an afternoon, I'll tell you that. But here's what Sigma writes about Diabolos. He is, referring to this arch foe, the devil, Hal Diabolos in the Greek, Revelation says of the adversary. Diabolos has the same root as ballistics, throwing something through another person, here with the connotation of complaining about a person to a private party, bringing charges, or simply throwing mud. In modern English, he is the slanderer or the mudslinger. For, listen to this sentence, for a war fought primarily in the realm of opinion, this points to a character who specializes in misrepresenting others. Pay attention to that. This is a war fought primarily in the realm of opinion, of belief, of understanding. And here the adversary's specialty is mudslinging. As I, last year and a half plus, I've been trying to do a deeper dive into Revelation, trying to get something of an understanding and a grasp of what it's saying to us. There have been many things that have happened along the way, but I'll tell you one. One of the growing realizations, convictions, that has come home to me as I've studied Revelation is this. As human history moves toward its conclusion. It appears from Revelation that you will less and less be able to believe what's right in front of you, what you're being told, what's being said, that more and more confusion dominates the world because the mudslinger is at work throwing mud in every possible direction. Until people don't know what to believe, don't know where they stand, don't know who's good and who's bad, who's right and who's wrong, what's up and what's down. Because the mudslinger has great anger and has come down knowing my time is short, I am going to destroy every possible person I can, especially this one. Much more to come on this, but for now, our only safety lies right here in the one who says, no one will take you out of my hand. As long as he has you in his grip, you have nothing to fear from the slanderer. Why? Because you know him. You don't believe the slander. You know him. That's your safety. Second quote from Sigma, slander is successful 
if it wins acceptance for the idea that the slanderer is virtuous, while the other side, the good side, is the villain. This calls for stealth, subtlety, and tremendous audacity. Think about that. What the slanderer is trying to do is so misrepresent things that being evil, you come to believe he's good. And the risen Christ being good, you come to question everything about him. That's the job right here. That's the second in the cast of characters. And like I said, more to come about that. And the third in the cast of characters. And I wasn't sure what to call this group. It's a group. I mean, participants, those caught in the crossfire, collateral damage, I wasn't sure what to call them. So I decided this was the best word by which to call them. It's you and it's me. It's us. Do you realize that we are here right in the first three chapters of Revelation? We're right here. We are here in what John writes to seven communities of faith. What he writes to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That's us. Now I understand you say, but I thought the churches represented a a sweep of history and different eras in Christian history. And there can be a legitimate approach that says that. But I want to argue that the churches represent all of us who have belonged to this grand invisible body called the body of Christ. The second century Muratorian canon pointed out this fact. It said John wrote his letter to seven churches and Paul wrote his letters to seven churches. Seven as the number of completion and perfection. By the way, seven appears 56 times in Revelation. It represents completion and perfection. Both Paul's letters and John's letters represent us all. Every single one of us who belongs to the grander body of Christ. You see it in the letters themselves. Every letter ends with this statement. Let the one who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. In other words, it doesn't in the letter to Sardis say, let those who are in Sardis hear what the Spirit is saying to Sardis. No, it's saying, let anyone who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Just like we would take Scripture and study 1 Corinthians 13 and try to understand how love applies in our church as Paul wanted it to apply in the ancient church in Corinth, so in the seven churches in Revelation, we need to understand how every message applies to us. That's us, the seven churches. We say we're Laodicea? Absolutely. We're also Sardis and Philadelphia and Ephesus and all the others. By the way, I've said we can't be Laodicea. It's always freezing cold in this church. How could we be Laodicea? I'd love to be lukewarm. You should have been here at first service. I walked out of here like an icicle. But anyway, I digress. They're all to us. And do you know what it says to the seven churches? It says things like this. You have lost your first love. 
You have a cold orthodoxy. It's time to learn to love again. It says you have people there who are pretending to be one thing but are another. Can't let that happen. You need authenticity and purity. It says you're accommodating too much to the spirit of the age. You're eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality, which was a package, the very things that had been prohibited by the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council. Now they're doing them. Why are those things bound together? Because in the pagan temples of the day, what began as a feast soon became debauchery and soon came, followed sexual acting out. John is saying, you've got to change that. You are utterly self-sufficient and totally unaware of your true condition. Buy from me. I salve so you can see. He's speaking to every church in Asia Minor and every church in Christian history. Now understand this. The churches to which John wrote at that point in time had much reason to fear. Much reason to ask, does heaven care? Because they were tiny little outposts in the Roman Empire. They had fled the center of Judea and Jerusalem because of persecution. Uh, Jerusalem church, the Antioch church, probably were of some size. But as they got out into the empire, they were small communities, small groups. There were, it's estimated that there were somewhere between 50 and 60 million inhabitants in the Roman Empire of the day. Do you know how big these churches are? We don't know for certain, but we believe they were house churches meeting in ancient homes. Two dozen people, three dozen people, surrounded by a vast sea intent on eradicating them. Jesus, they thought, would have come before now. The question must have arisen, does heaven care that we are alone? And then John has his vision. The cosmic Christ stands and says, I have all power in heaven and on earth. I have the keys of hell and of death. I was dead and I'm alive. And John turns to see the person speaking. And you know what he sees? Christ in the middle of his churches. He is with them. And that's where we begin Revelation knowing that while there are so many things we can't believe or trust, of one thing we can be certain, Jesus cares, and he is with our community. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.